0: Thank you for introducing me. So I want to uh, thank you for having me as a guest and uh, want to welcome everybody. And um, it's always neat to hear your own introductions. I have a nine-year-old, I asked him the other day, I said, "I was we, we sort of, have these trick questions we put out to each other sometimes. And I said, uh, so when you get up in the morning, how do you know it's you?
1: <laughs>
0: and uh, he got that smile. He caught it. And you know, this was one of the trick questions. And he said, I don't for, for a short moment. <laughs> okay. That was, good. You know, that was <laughs> good. OK. I said, and then what happens? He said, I, I, I'm not sure. I think, he says, I think it's habit. <laughs>
1: it's
0: <okay.
1: laughs>
0: yeah, the mouth of babes. Um, there's something so wonderful about sitting. I just want to speak to it briefly. When I said welcome to this Sunday morning, I think that is what happens when we sit. Uh, We welcome what happens. We welcome every moment that occurs. And uh, open to it. Acknowledge it. It's a little poem that comes to mind. is by Hafiz says, just sit there. Just sit there right now. Don't do a thing. Just rest. For your separation from God is the hardest work in this world. Let me bring your trace of food and something that you would like to drink. You can use my soft words as a cushion for your head. As a way of speaking, I think there's two things possible when we sit. One is, we get clear. You know, we look inside, and we uh, we get with what is. And then there's another possibility, uh, much more in the meta tradition of this path, that then gets to love what is, and rest in it, as the poem said. I think that's a little harder for a lot of us. That that thing about clear insight, you know, yeah, that's something we can do, you know, something to aspire to. The other part of really loving what is, is a bit more of a a non-activity. It's a a letting go into. And uh, it seems very important to me. And it's also really delightful. It's something you can do. How wonderful. You can come to rest in your own being. How wonderful. It just may be that coming to rest and trust is connected etymologically. So that there's an experience possible of deep, deep trust on a very elemental level of being when I say being, I really talk about being in the body. Um, There's not a whole lot to chase down there. There's a lot to open up to. And um, your body knows, right? Your body knows. How do you know? Well, my God says so. Language is full of this. So there's an inherent capacity for wisdom in the body. And um, it takes patience. It takes patience a lot. I always thought patience was for boring people, you know. I was too special to be patient or something, I don't know. Um, But as you get older and you're tested a few times, you learn that patience is really a bit more uh, exciting than it looks like. Because it's that ability to really sit in the fire. In the prison we have a practice we call sitting in the fire which is taking that seat, understanding that there's two kinds of pain in this world, basically. And the first one is called original pain. And you, if you do it well and you have some help, I think very few of us do this alone, um, you go in, through, and out. And what's left is ashes. That sounds good, but it's Something to learn, really. The, the other pain, the secondary pain, also called karmic pain, is, or arises rather, out of avoiding feeling the first pain. You know, it's like, also in the prison, we use this way of speaking where you run, you hide, or you face. And so when you begin to face, you begin to sit in the fire. And the sitting in the fire really relates to saying, okay, you know, I'll, I'll be here with this with this feeling. And it might be very uncomfortable, but I'll sit in the middle of it. And, and here's again, you know, because it sounds kind of like the warrior thing, right? But it's, it's very important also to do this with a spirit of kindness to yourself, where you burn up, these layers of fear or these layers of of anger or other strong emotions you may experience. And and you do it with kindness. That for once you're turning to what you think will burn you, what you think you'll die from. Let's let's call it for what it is. But you turn to it instead. I think that was Rumi who said, the cure for the pain is in the pain. But it sounds kind of bleak, right? Almost S&M, you know. (laughs) Well, why would you do that? Because things are not what they appear, you know. It was Rilke, the poet, who said, Perhaps everything terrifying is at base a helplessness that needs our attention. Perhaps everything terrifying is at base a helplessness that needs our attention. So to come home to yourself in this kind of not knowing, because you know, there's, it's not like you're going to know ahead of time what's going to happen, right? But what's possible is to develop a quality of connection. A quality of connection with this sentient being that we are. And there's not a whole lot more we need to do. If we really truly come to trust in that wisdom, you become a kind of a courtesan of the unknown. It's like the unknown moves as it does, right? Sometimes, sometimes here, there. And you just follow, you know, wherever it goes. And, um,. It's very orienting. It takes a, a trust, it takes faith and trust, but it's very orienting, too. Because, you know, our, our mental states and our emotional states can really wake us out if we don't tap into this deep sensory self. And that's so wonderful about this practice. I mean, why do you feel more oriented or deepened after just a half hour of sitting here? Suzuki Roshi called it uh, expressing your true nature. There's different ways to do it. This is a very special way. So sitting is expressing your true nature on this level. Also what's possible, if you can do this for yourself, is that um, you quite naturally become interested in how, how this sentence expresses itself in others, not, not just in people, mind you, but definitely also in people. And you become more sensitive to that quiver of the heart amongst ourselves as people and and wanting to respond to it in you know it's like you begin to feel with compassion as you open to yourself you open to the other and then you know it becomes really interesting like who is this other and how other is other from self on this level of sentience And remarkable things happen out of that insight between people. I see this all the time in my work. Remarkable things happen in places where you would least expect it. There's One of our programs that we run is a program where um, we create dialogue between victims and offenders of severe crimes. Sometimes these dialogues are direct between the actual offender and the actual surviving victim. Sometimes they're what you call surrogate victims and the crimes are related. It happens in group format and it happens individually. And there's a wonderful woman that works on staff with us, Rochelle Edwards, who is kind of the mama of it all. She's the uh, the manager of that program. And so we've been pioneering this in California to, uh, to try to uh, set up some support for this participatory justice or this, this restorative justice field. And um, an article appeared uh, from one of the dialogues a few weeks ago in the, in the LA Times on the front page of all places. And uh, I'm gonna read you a little bit from it in response to you know, this possibility of perceiving the quiver So a little bit of preamble. This is a dialogue between a woman whose husband was killed in a drunk driving accident. He was on a bicycle, got killed by a drunk driver and she wanted to meet with him and have a dialogue. You know, when life is taken out, uh, it often forms a bond between Uh, The parties that are involved in that, just as it does when life's brought in, right, forms a strong bond. And, And what we're learning more and more is that for some people, it's important to engage that bond, not for all, but for some. Hattie O'Reilly fixes a level gaze on the inmate Albertson and tells him it is her younger daughter who prompted her to come. The child expressed curiosity about the man who killed her father. Thus was born O'Reilly's interest in restorative justice and the healing it might bring. O'Reilly's daughter made two cards for Albertson. Her mom pulls out one decorated with a smiley face surrounded by a heart and reads it out loud. Dear Mr. Albertson, Today is the 16th of August, and I will be 10 years old on September 1st. I just want to make sure you know that I forgive you. I do still miss my dad. I think that's a lifelong thing. I hope you're feeling okay. Bye-bye. Shilban. Albertson blows out a heavy sigh and silence again overtakes the room. Finally, Edward speaks, asking the convict how the card makes him feel. His reply seeps out slowly, barely rising above a whisper. It almost feels fragile, you know. The resiliency of a child is incredible. The willingness to forgive is incredible. O'Reilly nods and then describes for Albertson the chain of events he triggered. She talks of her initial hatred towards him, of her belief early on that he should rot forever behind bars. In a low voice that breaks with sobs but never swells with anger, she describes the reminders that punctuate her days, the special songs on the radio, the sight of a bicyclist on the road, the graduations, first communions, and other occasions now shared by three instead of four. Recalling the day that her husband was killed, She relates in painstaking detail their last exchange of words, the fear that descended when he didn't come home, the horror when the sheriff's deputy arrived at the house, her daughter's expressions as she gave them the news. Albertson sits frozen, his face contorted. Forgive me, he says when O'Reilly finishes, his voice cracking. I know the tragedy I've caused. I, I can see it. I don't know how to fix it. I'm left with no way to fix it. I just have to feel it. O'Reilly keeps her moist eyes trained on his face. Some days, all I can do is feel the pain too. She says there is no fixing. Sounds like uh, sounds like the practice, doesn't it? i read just some parts of it because it's kind of lengthy to read the whole thing. So this is a bit later towards the end. The two exchange rosaries and O'Reilly gives the convict a bracelet from her younger daughter. He fingers it gingerly, appearing locked in trance. Edwards, attempting to sum up today's journey, offers a bit of wisdom. The goal, she says, is to make some meaning out of the catastrophe that united these lives, not sense, but meaning. They part. She passes back through the cyclone fence topped with coiled razor wire. O'Reilly recalls the words of a Catholic nun who ministers prisoners in Mexico. Forgiving is hard, but not forgiving is harder. Halbertson's feeling in the aftermath he confides are up and down and sideways. He's emotionally drained, frequently depressed but he feels uplifted by O'Reilly's willingness to meet him and calls her forgiveness an incredible, humbling gift. The convict is wearing the bracelet made by the little girl in Sonoma. Those cards she sent are on display right beside his bed. So that's almost like a ringing advertisement, you know, for this this willingness to go there and feel and realize there's nothing to fix. Close your eyes for a moment if you will. And check inside, first thoughts, usually best thoughts. Of what it is that calls out for forgiveness in yourself. It's usually easier to get moved and touched by someone else's story. It might be the way you drive yourself too hard in the onslaught of getting it all done. Or for the way in your pain, you've hurt this or this person. to do is really is is to say yes, I will feel this, I might not even know yet what the answer is to this inquiry, but but I will feel this i'm willing i'm willing to feel this. And then, if possible, but only, only if you're ready, you can express that to yourself. And it might just be a practice at first. I'm forgiving myself. Or I'm willing to learn how to forgive myself. For this specific thing. Can open your eyes back up. to take some questions if you have some questions please oh I love that.
1: for people once they are released?
0: Yes, there are. Uh, you know, this whole thing about incarceration is, is quite a big problem that we have. It's, it's sort of the, you know, prisons are sort of the receptacle end of all the breakdown in society. And within that, and the part that Inside Prison Project chewed off was to say, Let's see if we can bring a a real good process of socialization skills and classes inside the prison. Because there wasn't any or very little. Um, And then with that, we collaborate strongly with post-release organizations. And there's a program now that we've started that's expanding where we had a dormitory of 200 men and the new warden is expanding it to the whole yard, so it will be 1,000 men. And uh, there is going to be a much stronger emphasis on the uh, post-release aspect within that uh, approach.
1: Um, is, there, is there anything now I'm thinking of one person in particular mm-hmm. who's been in several times. Mm-hmm. Sort of repeat. Right. This out now.
0: Yeah, there, there are de- there, there are def- definitely a lot of programs, uh, depending on the area, you know, where you come from. Uh, maybe afterwards I could give you the specifics on some of them. Thank you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Hi.
1: I'm wondering, over here, okay. if it's not too personal, I'm wondering how you got involved with the prison work to begin with.
0: Mm. No, it's not too personal. It was actually so personal, I didn't see it for years. <laughs> we all study mindfulness for very personal reasons, of course. Um, For a long time, I I thought it was just, you know, my gradual awakening by being in the prison to uh, my sense of solidarity that grew out of seeing the injustice and the racism and uh, just the dismal aspect of it all. Um, But the truth is, next to that, uh, my father was a prisoner in the Second World War. I I grew up in Holland. And... uh, Um, He was doing forced labor for the Germans and um, had a very challenging time. He was 18 when he was picked up and uh, was close to Poland and pretty much walked back at the end of the war, which was a a dangerous time. Walked back to Holland. And uh, we, we used to hear him scream in his sleep as children. Uh, About everything he had experienced. And then when the Berlin Wall came down, he made up his mind he wanted to go back, meet with his captors, and make his peace. And uh, this was kind of unusual. My my father was a milkman, and it was a blue collar neighborhood. You know, people didn't go strange places like that. But he'd made up his mind and I took my mother, and they went back, and and he did just that. He found some surviving members of that family <coughs> in a village, and uh, sat around, and they made a, they made their peace, and he never screamed again in his in his sleep. Um, so that was a big impression. But odd, of course, that it took years for me to, you know, go oh. That. (laughs) Okay. Thank you.
1: I have a question. over here by the by the computer.
0: (laughs) This is a really good game you guys have. You have like a couple of microphones (laughs) going on. (laughs)
1: Uh, just a
0: quick question. Do, do you ever find yourself um I mean, you must have to deal with it, overwhelmed by the amount of suffering, the intensity of suffering, or maybe the, you know, hardened, angry, uh, uh, negative attitudes that you might encounter in some people. I mean, does that become tough for you? Do you have to incorporate mm. that in your mm.
1: practice somewhere.
0: No, that, that doesn't really... Uh, the challenge is way more in the office than the paperwork. and. <laughs> Those of you involved with nonprofits are laughing the loudest right now. Um, You know, of course, our programs are voluntary, so we get people that, in some sense, are more ready than others to uh, face their demons. But sometimes people come too, and and they just come because they'd like the certificate; it looks good in their files. and we're shameless. We take them anyway. <laughs> because quite often what happens after a while is is uh, they get genuinely interested because it's contagious. You know, there's a lot of wonderful things. Like, uh, and there's a lot of initiative that they get to have themselves. Like there's one group called the, uh, Brothers Keepers, which emerged out of the suicide of a life sentence man, It was a big surprise to the community, and a lot of despondency and despair came out of that. And so we we gathered and, and finally thought about, well, what can we do? And so then we resolved to get a training in crisis intervention and suicide prevention. So this group of men now has sort of become the canaries in the coal mine. You know, there's a lot of mental patients in the prison system. I believe 26,000, I believe, and so these men are now trained to spot, you know, when somebody is becoming uh, starting to move in towards some kind of mental crisis and intervene, and so uh, that's exciting, you know. And then they just graduated last Monday. They're also the first group now. To be uh, rape trauma crisis counselors. So there's a lot of innovative things that are, are happening. And, you know, it, 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 it's not necessarily, you know, when we started, we thought, well, this would be really good for practice, you know, yoga, meditation. These guys have time. So <laughs> this makes like a good idea. And it really was somewhat naive, you know. And, and quite quickly, we learned we probably serve better by leaving our idealism at home and just look what's what's needed here, what's you know what's helpful. Like there was no violence prevention program. You have you know, five and a half thousand people in prison. You have no violence prevention program. So that seemed important. <laughs>
1: I have a mic. (laughs) Um, Thank you for your story. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was very moving. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know if you might share another story um, where there is healing in the absence of an apology Mm -hmm. or in the absence of forgiveness.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. (coughs) Forgiveness isn't something you can uh, jumpstart, right? Like grace, it comes unbidden. You can open to it. But it would be a mistake, really, ethically almost, to try to produce it. Just because it's a good thing, right? Who knows? Who are we to say? Because we're more comfortable if, if other people forgive each other, Maybe it happens frequently that, you know, a a surviving victim that has a need to interact with the uh, offender wants to know what was the last moment of my loved one. Because I can't quite come to peace imagining that over and over again and not knowing it. And I know it's going to be a horrible story, but the truth will set me free. And this is what I want to know. Um, so sometimes it's that that heals. And and there's a, a settling. Closure is often a word that pisses survivors off. You know, it makes them feel you don't quite understand what's going on. Because you don't close. Stuff, But you learn how to relate with it differently. There's a a woman I'm working with right now that had a child killed, abused and killed. And uh, that's her need, is to know what happened in the last moment. And the offender is not ready to do this. So we're going to see if we can find another way uh, for her to find some life and some movement with that material. And you know, I know it sounds heavy when you talk about it like this. But it's quite amazing how sweet it can be too in the midst of that. You know, you, you probably felt that before that when you really feel the sadness, there's often a sweetness to it. It's like, okay, so you really miss this person, but how wonderful that there's this much love that leads you to miss this person in such a way, right? So it's not always as heavy as it sounds at first, first glance. Um, and does that answer your question? Yeah, thank you. It's on.
1: I have a question about the um, article in the paper. Yeah. It sounded like that offender had a problem with drinking. hmm And I'm wondering, you know, when you get into prison, you're, you have less access to alcohol or drugs, and, and maybe, you know, th- that problem seems to go away, but then <laughs> how is that addressed? Because when he gets out, he's just going to go and repeat that same behavior if, mm-hmm. if nothing
0: else has changed. Uh, they signed a contract. Patty pretty much said, uh, you know, I want a life for a life. She wasn't just sort of, you know, I'm here to forgive you and angels and trumpets here. Um, he signed a contract in which he committed to his recovery and his education. And... um and uh, to send her reports every six months on how he's doing, so that uh, there's some wisdom to to the forgiveness there. And um, he's he's very motivated out of this. He's very motivated.
1: Excuse me. Uh, What is the racial composition, generally speaking
0: in the prison? Um, I would say there's about uh, over a third of uh, African-American, about a good 20 percent of uh, Latinos. And I'm talking just in San Quentin. okay. another 25 percent of Caucasians and then the rest, others and Native Americans. Um,
1: I don't know how to ask this question. Is it because of their childhood lack of opportunity of their parents to live so-called middle class life? I don't know how to ask this question. Mm -hmm. That they become disenchanted.
0: Why such a large racial mix up compared to other? Institutions we have in the culture that's what no,
1: they're I mean, I speak very with a lot of naivety. I mean, is it because the blacks and the Latinos have a very difficult time? That's um, a big part
0: of it. Yeah. <coughs> There's less opportunity, less equality for those racial groups compared, comparatively, to have uh, the means to stay out of prison. Uh,
1: uh, is it getting better for them? based on the fact of say, you've got more blacks being able to get better jobs, things like that?
0: I don't know. I don't know if it is. I'd like to think so, but I, but I don't know.
1: Has your work had any influence on the uh, staff in the prisons? i <laughs> a <laughs> <laughs>
0: Please, please, pass
1: the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> My question is: What impact your work may have had? What impact your work may have had on the staff in prisons? You know, they're notoriously uh, insensitive and pretty much depressed people who work in prisons as uh, keepers and so on. Can you?
0: Show the mm-hmm. positive aspect in that area of your work and how mm-hmm. those people. There's quite a mixture of people, just as there is everywhere, among the officers, the correctional officers. I wouldn't say they're all depressed and, and uh, dysfunctional. Uh, there certainly are those. Um, they're curious. Often. And and often, you know, one of them will come and ask some questions, not in a group, one by one. And um, we're going to be involved for the first time in doing some training for the new program that uh, deals with the guards. It's around, you know, it's starting careful around some communication and um, but it's by all means a tough job, you know. Because the the system is dysfunctional, so um, the, the, it has the highest mortality rate, highest divorce rate, the highest—you name it. Um, so the sad statement is: the system doesn't work for the prisoners, for the officers, and for the victims. Okay, because it doesn't address the wounds that are caused for the victims. So. Yeah.
1: Last question. Um, I spoke to uh, a gentleman recently who'd been in prison for three or four years, and one of the things that he mentioned was that the the whole system works—how do you put it? Works against us getting out and doing well. And um, I thought, well, maybe he's a little bit paranoid or something, Mm -hmm. you know, and. and, uh, Subsequently, I spoke to a um, a gentleman who's done volunteer work at uh, one of the local prisons for fifteen or twenty years, and he essentially echoed the same thing talking about legislation, talking about uh, the uh, the union that that the uh, guards and and authorities are are covered under, and several other factors i don't remember, but it it really did sound like rather a hopeless. Um, circumstance and that there isn't a whole lot of, of effort to, to, to do much about it or to rehab people mm-hmm. sort of along the lines of what, what you were saying earlier and the question that Don asked.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, politically speaking, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's also called the prison industrial complex. It's you know, suffering as a commodity on some level. Um, so there's a lot of uh, undoing to be done on that. Uh, Simultaneously, you know, the other side that we we deal with is this kind of level on which you can say, you know, we're all doing time, you know, where freedom is a state of mind, not just a geographic given. And we have this, uh, part of our stationery says, leaving prison before you get out. And so the programs really uh, go to that uh, mind state, and particularly with the life sentence pres- prisoners. You know, when I sit with a group that has served over four centuries, uh, between the eighteen of them, and uh, we've been sitting for six years, and uh, there is so much freedom in that room. I can't tell you. We actually tried to uh, put some words to it once. You know, it's like, what are the criteria? And I'll I'll finish with that. What are the criteria for having left prison before you went out? And they came up with, we all together came up with three characteristics. One was to say, well, that this moment is perfect. This moment right here is perfect. You don't have to like it. You don't have to agree with it. But it's all there is. And there's a perfection in it if you have the courage to meet it like that. It's not circumstance, it's my stance. The second is to say, every person, every situation is my teacher. So there's this opening to learning away from judging You know, as in measuring, well, this this meets up like this and this thing. So you move from the courtroom to the classroom with that one. And then the last one is to say thank you. But not at the end because you got something that you liked and now you're really grateful. But up front. So that everything that's given can turn into a gift. Because you bless it that way. Because you've decided to be grateful up front, and um, those are some pretty remarkable guys, I can tell you. And it's a neat, you know, I kind of like it, there's these three things, and it's kind of a neat way of, of looking at your life and practicing and saying, wow, what would happen? How would I do my time, you know, if if I played with this, right? Because it is, it is, um, you know, the, the more you go on, then there's these rug pulling experiences, right? I mean, your health or somebody else's health or a divorce or. And and more and more you learn like, wow, you know, it's it's not circumstance that holds the day here. It's it's my stance. It's my willingness to meet it and open to what there is to be felt as a result. And uh, and so there's a lot of uh, grace alongside, right alongside the injustice. And there's a lot of grace. And so uh, I'd like to end with that. Thank you.